Welcome, my podcasting people, to another episode of Curator's Choice. This is your host, Ayla Anderson, and we're continuing with our theme of October in Weston, West Virginia. This will be the final episode of that fun month series. So we're going to be speaking with Katie Perrine. And Katie Perrine is a paranormal tour guide at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and she's also the co-owner of Appalachian Oddities. So I thought this episode would be a great bonus episode because we did our last episode on Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, talking a little bit about the history of the state hospital, how the doctors and nurses tried to use art therapy on their patients, and then we also talked about some of architecture history of the asylum with the stonemasons. But I also wanted to talk to you guys a little bit more about how these kinds of historical places and museums try to stay relevant today. So there are a lot of extra things that the Lunatic Asylum does. So they do all kinds of tours, obviously, but they do historical tours and they also do paranormal tours as the area is one of the super haunted sites in America, of course. So this was perfect speaking with Katie because, as I said, she's a tour guide there. And for this episode, she kind of talks to us about what that means. How do you investigate ghosts? And how does the asylum handle these kinds of situations and and maintain their their relevancy and continue their work with conservation. So it's not necessarily a conventional curator's choice episode, but I think it's it's a great adjacent to what we learned about the history of the asylum. And while we were in Weston, we stopped at Katie's shop, Appalachian Oddities, and it really is an, a great extra stop if you plan on going to the asylum or even just to stop there on its own. We had a great time. She has so many things in there and a lot of it is related to the items that we've even talked about in this podcast. So she has glass products there from Appalachian Glass and she has pieces of the asylum there that you can purchase. And it's a great place. They also have, I'll let her tell you, but it's a wonderful place. And she does a great job kind of talking about how her history with the asylum leads into her creating this this shop. So we're going to learn how to investigate. And even if you're a total skeptic, I mean, I think that there's still something to be learned from this episode. We're also going to be talking about, you know, lobotomy row. So we're talking about more of the dark side of the American asylum that was Trans-Allegheny. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. It's the last bonus episode that we're going to have before I start only doing the bonus episodes on my Patreon. The Patreon will be rolling out in November. And of course, you can see pictures of today's episode on www.curatorschoicepodcast.com and I'll share them on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you guys for listening and let's go ahead and jump right in. Okay, um, so I started as a paranormal tour guide at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum three years ago. Um, originally when I applied there, my sister had just been hired on as the secretary and um, she did that for for about the length of of three years and then she she decided to switch career paths and she moved on from the asylum but she's how I got into it 
And so when I, when I first applied, they were looking at me as a historic guide. And I also had another day job at the time and it just didn't fit with my schedule. So they said, all right, let's, you know, are you okay with doing the nighttime stuff? What, how do you feel about the paranormal? And I didn't really have any kind of belief um, or any kind of, you know, experience with this stuff beforehand. I, I knew that I always had a passion and a draw for, you know, things that are out of the ordinary, but I w- had never ghost hunted before in my life. I'd never done seances or any of that kind of stuff. Not that we do that at the asylum, but... The kind of atmosphere and that kind of path. Yeah, I had never been involved in that before, so I didn't, I wasn't really sure where my belief structure was. So I I said, okay, and they, they brought me on uh, to start training for the uh, paranormal tour, and my very first experience in the building was during orientation and it was me the previous night manager one of the veteran guides and another girl that had been on as training she had been hired on the same time that i did and um they took us up onto the fourth floor in ward t which is by far the most active ward that we have in the main building and it was daylight i mean they've got skylights all up through there you can see it was about 6 30 in the evening and we're all sitting in the floor at the end of the ward. And me and the veteran guide are sitting in the left-hand side of the hallway and the previous night manager and the other girl are sitting on the right-hand side of the hallway. And we're just sitting there kind of talking errantly about what the etiquette is, the kind of information you're supposed to share with your tour groups and you know, just, just having a run-of-the-mill conversation. And we started hearing noise at the opposite end of the hall. And so the veteran guide stops us and he says, all right, guys, he says, since you're new, let's, let's see where we are. And, uh, let's see how easy you scare. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's give you a test run. So he kind of leans up and he says, all right, guys, we can hear you making noise down there. If you want to come down here and sit with us, that's fine. I don't know. It was about 30 seconds after he said that we heard eight really loud footsteps in the middle of the hallway. Like I said, we can see they were loud enough that we felt the vibration from them under us in the floor. And then we hear what sounds like somebody's back smacking against the wall, sliding down and then thumping their butt off the floor. They were just making themselves comfortable. We felt all of that. And like the veteran guide had invited them down to sit with us. And that was my very first experience in the building. And And it um, was daylight. Like that's not even spooky. It was daylight and from there I was like hooked I was absolutely (laughs) yeah I was so addicted to the adrenaline of the situation of what you know what the activity is and so I I was just hungry for it and I wanted to learn everything I could about investigations everything I could about paranormal activity it just really sparked a fire in me and then three months after training I was certified as a tour guide there and I met all of my coworkers, and everybody that works at the asylum will tell you that this staff there, we're, we're a huge family. I've never worked in a place like it before where our, our crew, the people that we work with the most, we can, I could call anybody of my crew today and be like, hey, I need this. And they would immediately just come and help me with whatever. And it's just, it's, it's a great feeling to know that you work in that type of environment and that you get along with all of your coworkers. I mean, it just, it makes it really fun. And we do have a lot of fun. So um, I met Dawn Hensel. She was one of the veteran paranormal guides. She'd been there for probably a year before I had been hired on. So she kind of 
knew the rundown of things and and she was I trained with her a couple of times and uh, we started a friendship just talking back and forth and in the process of that she she learned that I I make soap I make handmade soap and that I was making a little bit of jewelry and stuff and she was like well I make some things too and um, we just kind of developed a friendship over that and then we realized that we had a love for vintage weird quack medical macabre yeah so like it all culminated into this into this one thing and so from that we we grew into where we thought we can do this we can open a business with this it won't be like anything else that anybody's ever seen we'll be part oddity shop we'll be part paranormal investigative research you know we'll and we just brought it all together and that's how we came up with Appalachian oddities um, so my time at the asylum has really been beneficial in the way that it has brought me new friends. It has taught me a lot about the paranormal realm and how to treat spirits when you're investigating any place. You know, you don't provoke, you don't go into their house and be mean to them. That's, you wouldn't treat a living person that way. So why would you treat a spirit that way? So, I mean, from there, it's come into this awesome little thing that you see here now. So. So, you know, when people do come here, which we are highly suggesting because we found some really amazing books that you have here and we had such an awesome time just walking around your store. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us a little bit about like what do you offer here in your shop? Well, we offer a, of course, we offer a wide variety of vintage medical items, you know, uh, old medical glass, old medical tools. Um, we offer artistic preparations of different medical devices. Those are some of the things that we do in-house here. Um, I work with a lot of different artists. I have artists from all the way out in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Some of these paintings here on the wall in the library. Those are things that he has done. And so we do consignment ship here. We work with different artists, different vendors that'll bring us things that they have made. A lot of my crocheted items um, have come from ladies that are just local and they like to do the lost soul shawls. And I like to keep things like that in here because I like to have something for everybody. And grandma that walks in here with their grandkid that's gonna, you know, really wanna be here. Grandma's not gonna enjoy to look at the things. So I wanna have something for her too. And, um, you know, we're supposed to be a place where the things you find here, you can't find anywhere else, which is why we have such a big collective of consigners that we work with. And we also, you know, we just had a lot of friends who were crafty and had hobbies of, of making things. And we thought, well, you know, instead of this stuff cluttering up your, your attic or your workspace at home, why don't you bring it to the shop and it gives us inventory to sell. And we do have a lot of material. We deal a lot with uh, the darker side of West Virginia as far as uh, paranormal things that go on here, or any of the cryptid lore that's out there. Um, a lot of the ghost stories. Um, and then of course I have a selection of paranormal investigative books that gives you ideas on techniques and kind of the the research end of it the science behind it um, so we really like to promote that as well because you know paranormal investigation is a science <laughs> it relies heavily upon your faith or your religious beliefs but it also relies heavily on the data that you collect and we have pictures and recording evidence and things that that need to be logged and so for someone like me 
I, I definitely, myself, I believe in ghosts. I feel like I have seen some, but I know literally nothing about paranormal investigation. Mm -hmm. So pretend that you're going to kind of give me the ins and outs. Like, how do you do something like that? Okay. So this is going to take me two places because I was thinking about this before we sat down to start talking. And one of the things that I encounter a lot at the asylum are skeptics. And we'll get into that in a second. But as... As a new ghost hunter, we experience this a lot in October. People don't know what to expect from the building. So they'll book an overnight stay thinking that they're going to have a full instructed session of how to do these things. And we don't mind to take the people, you know, through the building at night and show them what we do, how we investigate. That's our job. You know, they paid to be with the guide for the night. That's what we do. But if they're planning to go out and do this on their own in a place that's public, uh, there's a place out in Salem. It's um, out past Clarksburg on Route 50. And there's a tunnel out there called Flinderation Tunnel. And it's public access. So people can go out there and investigate, you know, whenever they want. They don't have to pay for it. So if a person comes to the asylum and they're wanting to get into ghost hunting, like we would start them off by saying, you know, trust, trust your intuition. If you walk into a place and you're immediately creeped out, sit down. Your body and your energy is telling you that something is there. So sit down introduce yourself and have a conversation like you would have with a regular person. Um, You can use, you know, there's some pretty cheap uh, ghost hunting equipment out there. There's uh, copper dowsing rods. um, Which are used for? Dowsing rods connect with electromagnetic energy. And it's, they're like, they're like the, it's almost like the sticks the Native Americans used yes, to use. Yeah, like water that, witching. The, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's exactly what they are. Okay. But they... I, I would like to say I don't know actually if Native Americans did that or not. I think it's one of those things that might be like a rural myth. I just want to say that since it's on podcast, but anyway. <laughs> right. Water witching was a thing. So, I mean, okay. there, there is there is history there. But the the copper dowsing rods in the building, they react to the energies that are around. And we will ask the spirits, you know, cross in response for a yes, push them away in response for a no. And dowsing rods are my absolute favorite form of investigative technique and it's because you know if we're dealing with spirits that were late 1800s early 1900s they're not going to know what all this technology is they're not going to know what the little blinking lights are or what all the you know the the noise and the little sirens yeah no to me I don't know what any of that means it's it's going to scare them away is is my feeling so I like to use things that aren't so technological you know people will download apps on their phone to do spiritus or they run a spirit box, which is um, the SB7. It's it's a little radio, and it just flips through radio channels really fast, so you get kind of a and it gives the spirits the opportunity to come through and form words. We use that a lot. When they're a phone app, I feel a lot of times that the phone apps can be manipulated, and I don't I don't trust that form of technology. You know. Um, A lot of people have said that there are apps out there that are pretty clear, you know, uh, uh, investigators that have been doing this for a long time, um, they'll try these apps out and they'll, you know, they'll see how accurate they are with, with things that happen, you know, in normal circumstances in the asylum, if it matches the activity that they usually get. So there are some things I personally do not like to use the phone apps. That is what I would suggest, just starting out, just kind of use use your own intuition use how your energy feels when you walk into a certain place it's kind of like 
you know, if you walk into a crowded room and everybody turns around and starts staring at you, immediately you're going to feel like you need to get out of there. Mm -hmm. So in the paranormal world, you're going to do the opposite. If you walk into a place and you feel like you're being stared at by a thousand eyes, sit down. (laughs) Somebody wants to say something. So you kind of tools of the paranormal trade. You have intuition, seems like it's one of the most important tools that you have. It is the most important tool. Then you have the voice box. Mm-hmm. You have, what were this? The dowsing rods. The dowsing rods. Dowsing rods. And then the, you could use the phone apps also that act like a voice box? Yeah, they, it gives you, um, a lot of times they don't generate noise. They'll just, it'll shoot a word across the screen and then that way you don't have the interference of the ch ch Okay. So, because it is very noisy. It's very loud. Okay. So, if you're not necessarily so much of a trained ear, then that might be something you could use. Do people actually use Ouija boards, or is that kind of more like a movie thing? Well, there's stigma behind Ouija boards, stigma okay. stigma behind the spirit boards, and um, we don't use them in the asylum, first of all, because of the stigma, second of all, because they are, they are a tool that can, you know, can let things in. And we, we like to keep things at the asylum positives. Now, what I was going to say about the skeptics earlier, I had, I had a, two years ago, it was a father and a son. They had come on one of the overnights and they had asked me specifically, they wanted to go off and investigate by themselves. They didn't want to follow the tour part. They didn't want to hear any of the stories or any of the history of the building. They just wanted to walk around. So they asked me at the beginning of the tour if they could go off by themselves while I gave everybody else the information. So they're on the opposite end and this is on the second floor. So they would have been down in E, which was general males admissions at the time. They were down on that end. And then me and the rest of my group, we were down on the opposite end, which is the children's ward and the juvenile males ward. So we got done with the tour. We all met back up in the middle. Uh, The biggest part of my group went downstairs for a break before they came up to to fully investigate that floor for their two hours. And the father and the son just wanted me to walk back through the wards with them just just to see if anything would happen, you know, because the son was a really big skeptic. So we get down into the juvenile males ward. It's ward two. And there's a bathroom down in there that there's a story of two young men. There was some kind of altercation. The young man ended up stabbing the other boy in the back 17 times. That young man ended up dying in that bathroom. And a lot of times in that hallway, we get reports of people feeling like their ankles are being grabbed or their shoelaces are being messed with. And we think it's this young man like reliving this moment over and over, reaching up, asking for help. But I hadn't told them that story at all. We walked into the bathroom and the son is just kind of looking around and all of a sudden the father starts making like throat noises. And I look back at him and he's white as a sheet. And I said, what is the matter? And he says, I, he's like, there's stabbing pain all over in my back. I feel like I can't breathe. And he just doubled over and he was like, the pain is so bad. I feel like I'm being stabbed. So I brought him and his son out into the hallway and I told them the stabbing bathroom story and they they left the building that night and their beliefs had completely changed. Yeah, I bet they weren't skeptics anymore. Um, they were definitely more open-minded after okay. that tour. So it was it was, it was was a good one. I, I like when that happens. I like when a skeptic comes in and we're able to open their mind a little bit because a lot of times skeptics come in with their beliefs and they're real hardcore about there's no such thing as ghosts. And so it's nice to see 
It's nice to see people exiting the building with just a little bit more of an open mind. That's great. Well, when being someone who, I mean, you go in and you, you work there all the time, when you when you go to that place, I mean, do you get like an overwhelming sense of, of oh, it's sad here because of all the things that happened? Or do you get kind of like, a, I'm so happy to be here and there were positive things? Like, what are your feelings about the asylum? You can talk to any of the people on the night crew and they will they will pretty much tell you the same thing. We all have different areas of the hospital that affect us differently. Um, there is a place down in the uh, in the lower floor beneath the first floor. It's not the basement. It's like the sub-basement. But it's called lobotomy recovery. And um, it is a place that's very uncomfortable for a lot of the guides. I mean, it's just even walking down through there, through those wards, is uncomfortable. It just feels negative. So I couldn't lose this opportunity to talk about the lobotomies and lobotomy row at the asylum. Walter Freeman is kind of the father of the lobotomy in the United States. And I don't say father as a loving term, but he kind of was the the first pioneer that really started that medical procedure and probably the most prolific in the U.S. for doing so. So who is Walter Freeman? Walter was born to a Philadelphia prominent medical family. He came from a family of doctors. They all had medical professions for generations. So it makes sense that he too would become a doctor. He has a few things in his past that kind of foreshadow the dark things he was going to do in his future. For instance, there was apparently a memory he had when he was young in his bedroom and there were construction workers working next door and they accidentally drove a pickaxe through his bedroom wall. Um, Another instance was, you know, during 1917, the U.S. entered the First World War, so Freeman was enlisted, and one of his jobs was drilling rivet holes in ship hulls, so a little bit of foreshadowing there. And then eventually he, the war ends, and he returns to Philadelphia, he completes his studies, and ends up spending a little bit of time over in France, but then once he comes back to the United States... It's 1924, he has this great education, and he starts a position supervising the pathology department at St. Elizabeth's, which was another Kirkbride-designed insane asylum, and this one was in Washington, D.C. So while he was there, you know, he supervised the laboratory, and he taught neurology, he wrote a book, um, but he also attended an international neurological congress in London in 1935. And this is where he meets Dr. Iguez Manes. So this guy was the developer of a the radical procedure known as a leucotomy, which is basically a lobotomy, but that's just what it was called while it was being processed over in Europe. And so he and Walter Freeman had been corresponding. Walter was a huge fan of Dr. Manes's work. And this new procedure he developed was using an ice pick. You would penetrate the skull, and then through the eye socket, you would cut all the neural connectors in the frontal lobe of the brain. And Manis thought that by doing this, you were cutting the negative and aggressive connections in the brain, and then the ones that were connected to intense emotional reactions and dangerous attitudes. 
this is what caused them to be insane. So he would sever that connection and his thought was that it would then regrow a new connection that would be more positive and it could lead to a more positive emotional state of being. So he claimed it was really successful and Walter Freeman was like, I'm all in, let's do this. So he met him in person and after corresponding quite a bit, he decided to try this procedure in the United States. So he started practicing on cadavers, which according to testimony of his bedside manner was much more his style. But then he moved on his first patient, I should say victim, But his first patient was a 63-year-old woman. She had a long history of mental illness. She had been in and out of asylums for most of her life. Her husband apparently was at his wit's end, and he agreed to sign this permission form on this novel new surgery. And this was a surgery was going to be a lobotomy done by Freeman, who was assisted by another doctor, Dr. James Watt. For some reason, they shaved and cleaned her scalp, and then they marked the spot between the bridge of the nose and the eye socket. It gets a little gross. They drilled a hole and then they put in the ice pick and then they kind of did like an arcing motion behind the eye to sever all of those connections. So apparently this operation lasted about an hour and then it seemed to be wildly successful. She was back home within two weeks and her husband said that she could occasionally be childlike at times, but she was no longer neurotic and she didn't have the anxiety. So boom, seemed like this huge success. So this was kind of the start of his frenzy of lobotomies in the United States. Another friend and former colleague of Freeman's was Edward Reeser, who was the director of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, then the state hospital. Edward had known Freeman, was a fan of his work, and then heard about these successful lobotomies that would basically take a dangerous case of insanity and make them like a child again. So he begged his friend to come to West Virginia. And of course, Freeman accepted. And in 1948, he came to the asylum and then began doing lobotomies like crazy. So by 1952, only four years later, he had performed 787 lobotomies, including at one point he did 225 in a 12-day period. So he was doing these alone. He no longer had his previous Dr. James Watt as an assistant. So it was just Freeman going nuts, creating as many of these as he could. And he got them down to be about 10 minutes at a time. So, I mean, that's a huge difference from his first operation taking an hour to getting it down to 10 minutes. Because he was doing so many of these in West Virginia, it actually created West Virginia to be the highest per capita rate of lobotomies in the entire nation. He even had a lobotomobile, which was just a van that he drove around with his ice pick tools in his pocket and then just performed bargain surgery out of his van. He also was not very clean. So he didn't believe in basic hygiene. He didn't ever wash his hands. He never washed his tools. He just kept them in the pocket of his old coat. He didn't think that there was a need for sterilization. So obviously this led to a ton of infection. So what I'm assuming is a lot of times he thought that the surgery was successful because the patient didn't immediately die, but a lot of them died afterwards from infection. 
he also apparently was a huge showboat about his medical prowess. He loved being photographed during these procedures. And there was even one instance where he was in the middle of a procedure on a woman. He turned so that he could give the cameraman a better shot of him. And it broke the ice pick off and left pieces of it in the woman's head. This guy's got a huge head. He thinks he's super successful. And by the end of this lobotomy era, over 40,000 lobotomies had been performed in the United States. It wasn't all by Walter Freeman, obviously, but he was one of the huge promoters of this surgery. But thankfully, in about the 1950s, this ice pick era kind of ended. So you had an incoming of psychotropic drugs, which had the same effect as lobotomy, but wasn't nearly as damaging and didn't have the risk of the infection loss. And of course, a lot of these failures that he had of mutilating these people came back to really haunt him. His worst failure was the lobotomy of Rosemary Kennedy, who was the daughter of the U.S. ambassador to England, Joseph Kennedy, and the sister, obviously, of future President John F. Kennedy. So she got her lobotomy when she was just 23. You know, she had melancholy and kind of sometimes unpredictable outbursts, and this highly political family wanted to make sure that they weren't put in the spotlight like that, so... They gave her this lobotomy and it was a disaster. She ended up being institutionalized for the rest of her life. She was basically hidden completely from the public eye. And it was failures like this and then just a multitude of other failures that resulted in the death or zombie state of a lot of his patients that he eventually did lose his license to practice in hospitals. And apparently after that, he spent the rest of his life trying to get redemption, and he died at age 76 of colon cancer. And while we were doing the tour, there was just so many stories of these people who had gotten these lobotomies and then tried to tell him that it wasn't working. They were getting sick. They were dying. They were no longer the same person that they were. But really, he just kind of was so high up in the clouds. He was like, no, it's definitely successful. You're not nearly as violent. And it's okay if some of these things happen. Sometimes deaths happen in, in medical procedures. But overall, it's an overwhelming success. It was not. And finally, he got stopped. But not before he destroyed so many lives. So there's the skinny on the lobotomist Dr. Walter Freeman and lobotomy that happened in the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Okay, let's get back to Katie. And then there's a place on the fourth floor that kind of mirrors the same negative aspect, and that's in Ward R, which if you're a Paranormal Lockdown fan, you would have seen their episode where they saw what we call the Creeper. Oh. The Creeper is, uh, is an entity that is uh, a regular sighting, and... Um, they actually caught it on camera when they were with us. So, and we, you know, so that side of the building kind of has more of like the negative aspect, which would make sense because that's where the violent patients were housed. And then on the other side where we have Ward T, like I said, Ward T is really active, but the spirits that are up there, a lot of times they can get cranky and you can feel like it's kind of like a hateful energy, but for the most part, it's jovial the guys that are at the beginning of ward t we call them frank and larry those are our prankster spirits they're just they're just two guys they like dirty jokes pretty girls alcohol cigarettes playing cards like that's that's how they act and then um the ward that i have the best activity in is the juvenile males ward and i think my connection there is because i have nephews that i'm really close with 
and walking through there, I can get overwhelmed with sadness because I cannot even fathom how it was for those boys, you know, living there in that hospital like that. So I do get weighted down with a heaviness, but I feel like the connection that I have with the spirits in there, I feel, it, it does feel very much like an auntie energy, like, you know, Aunt Katie's here when I walk in. So, I mean, that's, that's just the way, that is just the way that I am most comfortable viewing it. Cause I don't, I don't like to influence person's beliefs or, and I definitely don't like to influence their time at the asylum. So I, you know, I want them to go away with their own thoughts and their own beliefs. And the best way to do that is just to say, well, this was this, or well, no, we don't have an answer for that. That's perfect. So if you do get the chance to come to wonderful Weston, we have fallen madly in love, definitely check out the asylum, do some of the tours, but then also 100% come to your Appalachian Oddities store. And I mean, you guys have so much here. You, we were talking earlier, but I mean, you have all these amazing medical instruments and kind of the macabre stuff. You have some beautiful crocheted pieces. You have artwork, but then you also have like a few rooms that you can walk into that are like themed rooms. Yes, we have themed rooms. We have um, we have what we call the armory, which is my business partner's husband's room. He makes all of the items in there, and they are very horror movie prop theme type stuff that he does. Um, my boyfriend, who's also very heavily involved in the shop, his room is the Classic Movies Archive. And the collection that's in there that's available for viewing is his Clash of the Titans collection. That's a collection that has been under development for 30 years. And it has a lot of really important and sentimental pieces in it. Very cool to check out if you're a Ray Harryhausen fan. Um, we are opening an escape room. We should have that open. Um, our book selection, we have a really, really wide range of titles that, that we do here. Everything from West Virginia folklore to paranormal investigative techniques. I, I do have the library set up comfortably. So if you're not certain that you'd like to purchase the book, you can sit down for a minute and read it for a little while. Right where we're sitting, it's very comfortable. I can attest. All are welcome. And we want everybody to be comfortable and happy while they're here. Well, thank you so much for sharing your paranormal expertise with us and for sharing with us this amazing shop. And we, we hope that we have encouraged people to come and do both. Thank you so much for the interview. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, it's awesome. We love it here. <laughs>